This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Apple by Mother Love Bone with special guest Eric Peterson. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay. It's ep- Tim. It's episode 238. 238. Sure we're in is. season five, and we are tackling an album that you suggested. It's um, the 25th anniversary of this record. It's a, I would say it's probably one of the... M- most important albums of the 90s is that fair to say uh you know i totally agree and it's one of those that it's so obvious uh for this show Mm -hmm. i I can't believe we haven't done it yet (laughs) actually before i recommended it i had to go on our own site and make sure we hadn't reviewed it because duh like we should have started with this record we started with obscure and unimportant not obscure and important because right. this is this is still kind of an obscure record. I think if oh, you went yeah, up to most absolutely. music fans, they wouldn't know the record. They no. might know a song off this record because of the single soundtrack. Sure. If they saw that movie and owned that soundtrack, but they're not going to know the record. And the, and what we're dancing around is uh, Mother Love Bones album from 1990, Apple. And we're not doing the compilation album that came out a couple years afterwards, which which combines the Shine EP from '88 with the Apple album from 1990 into one. Uh, complete re- recording. Um, what we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this record. We're gonna talk about a lot of stuff around this record too. And to help us do that, uh, we brought on someone who just joined us two weeks ago. This might be the fastest return we've ever had on the show. That breaking uh, every record that we had before. Eric Peterson's joining us. Talks about Love Bone. Welcome back, Eric. Thanks for having me. So I knew I had to have you back on the show, not only because you, during our Influences episode, talked about Mother Love Bone right out the gate, but also posted a picture when we when we posted the preview for this episode of your collected Mother Love Bone slash Malfunction Andrew Wood memorabilia, audio recording, video recordings. Um, it, it pretty much guaranteed you're going to have a spot talking about this particular album on this show, so... Well, thank you. As a warning to future uh, posters on Facebook, if you profess your uh, your love and admiration for a band in such a way, you might get called upon to um, come on and discuss it. So you have been forewarned. There's a lot to talk about with this record. Not just that it's an album that contains members of bands that would go on to do other things, which, by the way, I did... Uh, reach out to Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard. They were not available to join us for this episode. So um, not that I heard back. I just assumed that they were busy. They probably had a barbecue or something to go to in in Seattle or what have you. But uh, in lieu of that, we're going to have to talk about it on our own. There's a lot of stuff going on with this record in terms of its members, in terms of its influence, in terms of the what-ifs with this record. Mm -hmm. Of course... If you're familiar with Mother Love Bone, and we'll get into it in the history, there's a tragedy involved with the band. So I'm going to do a brief history of Mother Love Bone. I just want to basically cover some of the basics. History of the band. The band was formed in 1988 in Seattle, Washington, and they were only active 
really for two years. They released, like I mentioned, uh, the Shine EP, which came out in um, 89. Actually, I said 88 earlier, but it was um, March of 89. It was recorded in November of 88. And then they released the album, Apple, which we are reviewing in July of 1990. Now, of course, the, the tragic aspect of this is just before... The album was to come out. Uh, Andrew Wood died of a drug overdose. Um, and this is covered... I think it's covered a little bit in the Hype documentary that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously there's a documentary about Andrew Wood. What's the title of that documentary? It's called Malfunction, the Andrew Wood story. Okay. And I don't remember if, if we said it or not, but Andrew Wood was the lead singer. Right. Lead singer, sort of the... so. Just to back up a little bit, uh, Jeff Ament, bass player and Stone Gossard, uh, rhythm guitar player, had been in um, Green River with, um, I think, Bruce Fairweather was also in that band. Maybe not in the original incarnation, but I think he joined the band. Yep. And then uh, the lead singer was Mark Arm, who would mm-hmm. later be in Mud Honey. After that band broke up, they... Join X, who is now X Malfunction frontman Andrew Wood, and X Skinyard drummer Greg Gilmore, and form Mother Love Bone. And the form, and let's see, in who was in Malfunction? So that was Reagan Hagar was the drummer. Yes. Who would then go be the who would be the drummer in Satchel or Brad? Um, Satchel, I believe. Okay. And then I think, as I recall, the other members were Andrew Wood's brothers who would go on to have various bands, including one called Devil Head uh, that had a couple of CDs and another one called uh, Fire Ants, which I never heard any or found any recordings. And it's on. Kevin Wood, right? Uh, There's Kevin, and I want to say it's Brian because there were, I think, two brothers. Okay, and then Kevin Wood would go on to record an album with Sean Smith of mm-hmm. Satchel and Brad called All Hell the Crown, um, and that came out probably five or six years ago. I think it was just self-titled. Uh, yeah. Reagan Hagar was in Brad and Satchel. He was in both. Okay. It's a very incestuous Yeah. Scene, it's hard not, to... Fu- but not... I don't... I never got the impression that it was contentiously. I think that there was definitely, you know, people who didn't get along. But from all the documentaries and books and everything else, it sounds like they were very supportive of, e- supportive of each other. And that when bands broke up, there was conflict, but there was still kind of the... Hey, well, you know, we're all in the scene together. We all play shows together. Yeah. Kind of thing. I but think I, you still see that with um, uh, Pearl Jam in the recent years has covered a couple Mother Love yeah. Bone songs live. And Chris Cornell, obviously, with Temple of the Dog, which was all about this band. And mm-hmm. so it's brought, yeah, you're right. It's brought a lot of people together. And, and a lot of those bands are very different. I mean, this band is very different from Soundgarden musically, but yeah. um, they all got along. And if I can just drop in my random piece of trivia, you guys remember the band Faster Pussycat? Oh, yeah. Of they course. actually had a song that was dedicated to Andrew Wood on their album after he passed. Which song was that? It's called Mr. Love Dog. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. Huh. Yep. That is interesting. Well, I believe that one, at least one of the members of that band, or maybe the whole band, was from the Pacific Northwest, so they would have been playing around in the same circles. And and obviously, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but Guns N' Roses was the big player in the the scene that came right before 
or mm-hmm. one of the big players in the scene that came right before grunge. And um, uh, Duff McKagan was from C- Seattle area, and he was he played with a lot of these guys. He was in bands with a lot of these guys. And, and you know, there's stories of, of him lending Guns N' Roses tour equipment to the Fastbacks when they're touring Europe or whatever. Yeah. Uh, keeping contact with that, that scene. Well, just yeah. to talk about the incestuousness of the scene, McKagan was in 10-Minute Warning, and Greg Gilmore was also in 10-Minute uh, Warning. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it continues to sprawl when you find out things like, you know, uh, King's X. Uh, these bands were big fans of King's X, and Jeff Ahmet did a side project with, with Doug Pennick, and Pearl Jam took King's X out on tour with them. And so you get not only the local scene where they're playing with each other, but bringing in their influences later on to play with them and do side projects and that kind of thing. Now, clearly, uh, you know, in reading about the history of the band, the they were sort of a, a weird bridge between you mentioned like the fast pussycat and the guns and roses, yeah. the eighties the for lack of a better term, hair metal, but they were treading in some, I guess, uh, new waters. Um, some of that could be a tinge of a Jane's addiction. Um, there was some other bands that we'll get into that th- they could be compared to. Uh, but what I found interesting was that, so they sent a polygram and they ended up getting their own exclusive imprint when it they did. were at the label called Star Dog Records, um, which ended up uh, issuing their EP Shine. Do you, do you know? Uh, I was going to bring this up, but do you know who else was on that label? Uh, no, but I can Google it real fast. But go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I have it here. There's a band called The Velt, which I never heard of. There's a, a band called Greta, which I believe was somehow related to Eddie Vedder. They were they were kind of an interesting kind of uh, grungy power pop band, as I recall. I know they had one or two songs that I really liked, and uh, a band called Animal Bag, who was one of my special little. Nobody remembers this band from the '90s, but they're probably best known for being the band that plays live on the first episode of the t- television show My Soul Called Life. Hmm. They're a great band. I highly recommend people check out. The other band that was on Star Dog Records, Ugly Kid Joe. Wow. And it, they huh. put they put out the probably the the most prophetic, um, prophetically titled album in I think in history, America's Least Wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to bring them up as when we got into the conversation about Bridge Band, which I guess we're in now, which you know we Mother Love Bone is considered. Mm-hmm. I <clears throat> unfortunately I think we have to consider Ugly Kid Joe a Bridge Band. I think they were. Yeah, wearing flannel and sort of image-wise, we're moving in another direction. The music was was dumb, but it was like a little less polished, I guess. But the, and they were certainly, at least from an image standpoint, moving away from you know some of the teased-up hair and stuff, and starting I, to s- simplify it a little bit. I agree with you, and I also think that they were dumb, but I think they were dumb in a, in a clever kind of a way. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a knowing level of sarcasm or, you know, something in that when what they what their music was that it wasn't just, you know, they they were stupid and, you know, talking about girls and partying and all that stuff. I think it was yeah. a little more uh, almost make parodying uh, hair metal to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a sense of humor about it. Oh, yeah, I, definitely. Which, I, which actually I think. Mother Love Bone does as well, which is oh, yeah. part of that transition is 
you know, there's there's humor in here. They, they they whether or not they're making fun of other people, they're certainly you know willing to make fun of themselves a little bit and have fun with themselves. So, uh, you know, I don't think Andrew would take himself too seriously. <laughs> you know, he's almost uh, a, yeah a David Lee Roth type character at times. Um, well, in terms, well, of, he was. Go ahead. Well, just in terms of his stage banter and sort and, and like the uh, the the monologues and, and songs and and those sorts of things. Yeah, and I think I think he uh, he had an understanding of the glam era from the '70s, very much you know T Rex and Elton John and early Aerosmith and that kind of uh, those kinds of bands, and he, he saw that I think the continuum of what the hair metal had had kind of evolved out of that glam and made it a lot more poppy and accessible. Mm. And uh, you know, there's in the in the documentary about him, and also in the Mother Love Bone Earth Affair video, he talks about being willing to open for warrant like we'll go on the road with warrant that's fine just give us a shot (laughs) (laughs) oh man did they do any big tours i don't know i don't i don't believe so i think they did a few minor tours but it sounds like their um their career was the plan was to get this record out and then just send them off and then it didn't happen because there was two years, right, between the, yeah. the first EP and this record. Well, I'm yeah. sure they they did a van tour or something across America. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing, maybe nothing big. They probably uh, potentially played places that Green River had been, you know, that that other bands they knew had been. Tim, is there any story around, or, or Eric, do you know a story around how they ended up getting the imprint on the label? Um, uh, as far as I know, there was a bidding war because of. Um, because the, they had generated some buzz, and, and actually that that might have something to do with the Duff McKagan connection. Because you know you get a band like Guns N' Roses, and suddenly every label wants the Guns N' Roses, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, you know these guys are, you know, there's there's a connection there with Duff McKagan, and the scene was getting a lot of buzz and starting to blow up on the West Coast, and there was kind of a bidding war. Yeah, that's kind of what I read as well. That you know this is. They're getting signed around 88, 89, you know, in that era. So hair metal hasn't imploded just yet. And this is a band that could be seen as a, I don't want to say a trippier, but a, a, a different version of Guns N' Roses. They're a five-piece. They're a, um, you know, very melodic, but heavy, mm-hmm. um, I think when in, Joe Royland made some comments in his um, trying to look back through what he said. I think he mentioned the Cult um, as being abandoned. I think when I went back and listened to the record, I hadn't listened to it in a while. But when I went back and listened to it, I really picked up a, a lot on some like uh, middle '80s era Cult, like you know, Love and um, that area, that area era of the band that. I hadn't really heard before. Um, so there were, they were definitely like in the same ballpark as some of like the biggest bands from the eighties in terms of their sound and their ability to write hooks and that sort of cachet at that time probably allowed them to, you know, I don't think Polygram was a big player in, in that scene in terms of all those bands. So probably gave them an opportunity to be a little bit, you know, more demanding with their, what they wanted to get done in terms of the, you know, the band and having their own mm-hmm. imprint. So, uh, when did everybody discover the band? Okay, I guess I guess I'll go. So, um, 
this is one of those stories that, that I, I tend to tell. I went to, um, I graduated high school in the spring of 1991, and I went to this university in Upper Michigan in the middle of nowhere, and it was all Rat and Warrant and Two Live Crew and Guns N' Roses and Boys to Men, and that's all anybody was talking about. I have a very vivid memory of going to my orientation in July of 91 and the guys across the hall from me blasting the warrants, then big single Uncle Tom's Cabin over and over and over. So I came home at, at, the, uh, at the end of that first semester and uh, I went to this, this kind of punk rock high school USA. I mean, I, I went to the high school that the drummer from the Von Bondies went to high school. I went to high school with him. Um, I went to the high school that Andrew W.K. went to. I went to high school that the band The Necros, some of those guys went to. I went to high school mm-hmm. with the daughter of uh, MC5's um, manager. You know, uh, So, I mean, punk rock, total punk rock high school. And people were keyed into the underground scenes. And everybody's talking about Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden. And my friends and I were the kind of, of music fans that once we found a new band... We'd be like, well, who else do they know? Who else? Who else? Uh, where are they coming from? What other bands have these guys been in? And my my best friend uh, traced or read somewhere about Mother Love Bone being the band that came before Pearl Jam. So he got the CD and that played it. He actually left it in my house accidentally, and you know, I got hooked, and that's kind of the rest is history. Um. So my junior year of college, which would have been. I guess 94 to 95. I had a new roommate. He was a freshman. I was a junior. And he brought in a bunch of CDs and stacked them up in our dorm room. And he had, you know, all the, up to that point, I guess all the Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, everything, everything from from Seattle. You name it. It was a Seattle band. He had it. Uh, And he had Mother Love Bone. And I, he had the, the compilation with the Apple and Shine Together. And he was like, you got to check this out, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about music. And I did not get it when I first listened to it. I'm like, this doesn't sound anything like Pearl Jam. Like, what? this is an even flow. And uh, it was probably not until like the late 90s that I actually went back and listened to it again. And was like, oh, okay, this makes, now this is making more sense. And I think because... When he first gave it to me, I didn't get the connection between like Temple of the Dog and Pearl Jam and what all that stuff meant and how it was connected. And I didn't have like the big picture of, you know, like we mentioned about sort of the, the incestuous scene of the, of Seattle and where how those guys all connected. Even though I liked Brad, I didn't understand the connection of Brad other than Stone Gossard was in Brad. Um and and the lead singer of Brad was the same lead singer in Satchel, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it really wasn't until the late '90s where I reconnected with that record and went, "Oh, okay, this is, this makes more sense." And um, I've just grown to appreciate it more and more. And, and and getting ready for this particular episode and really diving into the record, listening to all the nuance and all of the uh, lyrics and vocal melodies and guitar playing and all that kind of stuff, really just sort of took me back to that rediscovery period of the 90s and what about you jay uh so pearl jam broke um immediately there was obviously you start trying to find out all right who who are these guys where are they from the record labels aren't dumb so when pearl jam breaks 
they put out this Mother Love Bone compilation. And then, you know, through press and everything else, you start to make the connection of, you know, the story of, you know, what could have been and this mysterious guy who died and it's two guys from Pearl Jam. And so I just dove into it because of that, you know, just wanting more uh, like that, that, you know, original Pearl Jam record 10. And uh, yeah, and immediately was drawn to it because while I love the music of 10, uh, I've never been a huge Eddie Vedder fan. So to me, this made much more sense for a kid who, you know, grew up on classic rock and mm-hmm. pop metal and that sort of thing. Like I got it. Like it was interesting and different musically, you know, unlike what I had, you know, grown accustomed to, but from an image standpoint and even from some of the, you know, some of the the singing style in some ways and just the overall packaging had enough of what I was familiar with and it made total sense. So this quickly became, you know, one of my favorite records um, and I've played it to death. Um, so yeah, I've been a big fan since then and it's kind of funny. Uh, Brad is one of my other favorite bands, at least from the nineties and, but I don't really like Pearl Jam at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I like whatever Stone Gossard does outside of Pearl Jam, just not Pearl Jam. I'm sure we'll get to it, but how do you feel about Temple of the Dog? Oh, I think that's great. I love that record. Hmm. Vetter um, only sings on, like, uh, it's pretty limited on that record, right? Like, yeah. I haven't um, gone back and listened to it in a while, but he sings on Hunger, Hunger Strike. Strike. Yeah. Is that it? And then Cornell sings the rest I of it? I think he does some backup stuff on yeah. Say Hello to Heaven and uh, Reach Down. And I think the rest of it is... is um, is Cornell basically fronting Pearl Jam? Yep. I just want to point out that if you go onto eBay right now, which mm-hmm. by the time this airs, it won't be available, but you can buy an original pressing of Apple for four hundred and ninety nine dollars wow. on, on vinyl. So, no kidding. There you go. No. All those LPs I didn't buy back in the day because I only had a CD player. Yep. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Up? That's what uh, if you could go back in time, you wouldn't buy stock in Apple. You would just buy vinyl that people yeah. are now selling for four five hundred dollars on eBay. Well, I'm I'm actually a little surprised that I mean I know there's there's a market out there for the uh, you know for for the the original pressings, but I'm always surprised that there's uh, not more reissues of some of this stuff. But we'll see. There's so, a there's a white vinyl on here. This must be a reissue. It's only forty bucks. Yeah, that's a reissue, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Because the one that was listed was, it said, like, first pressing. Mm. And that was probably a promo because I, I believe that, for the most part, uh, LP pressings in those, those at that point in time were all promotional for the most part. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they totally gotten out of vinyl. Uh, it's, uh, you know, to bring it back to my, my last suggestion, I actually have the double LP of Paws Dragline album. That was the promotional that came out at when the album's released. Oh, very cool! So you you don't see a lot of vinyl from from uh, from the beginning. I mean, by by the time Pearl Jam and Nirvana did their second records, they were able to demand a vinyl release. Yeah, and demand that it come out a week earlier than the CD. 
Well, plus, I mean, if you were recording, we've gone over this, mm. you know, extensively. The records got so long because CDs were longer. Yep. So to translate that to vinyl, which probably meant most of these would have had to been pressed on two records, which yeah, <laughs> probably gave all the labels heartburn, like, great, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. Not p- pressing double records for something that nobody's going to buy. Right, exactly. Let's talk about the actual record. Let's get into the music. Um, we don't have to go track by track, mm-hmm. but let's let's talk about... Um, I, I really see this record as like two different... It's it's kind of split. Um, you get the, the up-tempo rock, riff rock-based songs. Predominantly, they dominate sort of like the first half of the record. Yeah. And then you get the... The, the thing that really separates, for me, Mother Love Bone, where if you try to categorize it as a later version of hair metal or an early version of grunge, the thing that really makes Mother Love Bone unique is when they slow it down and Andrew Wood gets to sit at a piano or they're playing acoustic guitars, songs like Stargazer, Man of Golden Words, um, Crown of Thorns, bone china like those are the songs to me that really like they are of themselves they don't have they don't have a lot of connection to anything that's going on or anything that would come um i'm just curious as to as an overall what your feelings are on this record in terms of sort of sound and influence and that sort of stuff um Uh, okay Um, so i think the uh Basically, that that first half with songs like "This Is Shangri La," "Holy Roller," "Come Bite the Apple," that's their Aerosmith side of the record. You know, they, hmm. they famously was said, uh, I think, in the hype documentary that in Seattle they didn't know that they could they, that they weren't supposed to listen to Aerosmith and the Stooges. They didn't know that you were only supposed to pick one of them. Right. So, <laughs> so the, and they were big classic rock fans, and I know that Aerosmith was a touchstone for for a lot of those guys, and Cheap Trick was for a lot of those guys as well. And then this, to me, the second half, that slower part is, is Andrew Wood's Elton John fixation. And am, am I alone in wanting to hear Elton John's cover of, you know, Gentle Groove or, you know, Man of Golden Words? I think that could be an interesting thing for, for you know, uh, an Elton John to do. Or if Freddie Mercury, if he was still around, somebody, somebody from that yeah. original glam era that, that this is referencing. Well, what's weird is that look with Man of Golden Words and Gentle Groove, you've pretty much nailed sean smith's like whole like sound yeah right there in those sorts of songs like it's so he's talked about what a big influence andrew wood was and how devastating it was to to lose him but man those sound like sean smith's songs like for <laughs> off of various records to me those songs deserve to be hits and they deserve to be heard they deserve to be out there, whether it's somebody playing them live or on the radio or like us talking about them.
Houston and Earth as it is in Dallas. But I think. I think that that beyond you know they they have the gloss of some of those those early glam records, but they have a substance to them. But they also have a soul to them that you didn't necessarily find with mm-hmm. you know the bands that would follow uh, in the wake of Seattle the Seattle explosion. If you look at it from a production standpoint, you know it's it's big and reverby. Mm-hmm. You know the drums are uh, a lot of these songs are really of slow tempo or you know mid-tempo-ish or just below and the reason it works is because you know there's all this space sometimes um where they'll you'll hear this big snare hit come in and all that reverb really just fills it all out and it sounds big and full and the way the riffs work too it it leaves space for um those drums to cut through but also uh, andrew wood's vocal to kind of play off of uh either the riff or off of the drums so it's got that – it's definitely got that production quality of um, kind of a big late 80s record. Um, but, yeah, there's a – there's the way the riffs are done, I think, for me, is obviously one of the first things I, I really enjoyed about Pearl Jam when I first heard them. I hadn't heard guitar. just was a different approach to guitar um, that, than I was used to. Um, it harkens back to more of a – a true 70s Jimi Hendrix or maybe Zeppelin kind of playing where it's a, you're interspersing big chords with palm muting and then melodic, these melodic lines. So you yep. kind of like riffs are constructed of multiple parts, which is really cool. Um, have, you, have you ever heard the description of grunge being one part big black, one part black flag and one part black Sabbath? <laughs> I hadn't, but and that that each of the big four four bands that uh, each of them just mixes them in different parts. Mm-hmm. So Pearl Jam has more of the the Black Sabbath that that big kind of arena sound, whereas mm-hmm. Nirvana had more Black Flag and Big Black because they were more mm-hmm. of that punky indie sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this band, I mean, they can get you know musically it can get dark you know which is mm-hmm. which is cool too but the the thing that makes them a little bit different than some of the bands you mentioned is that they can turn especially on some of these choruses like um, a song like uh mr danny boy like mm-hmm. you know the verses of that song are pretty dark sounding i mean that could almost be a soundgarden ish kind of riff and in tone but then it shifts on a dime when you get to the chorus and it gets you know pretty bright just goes to a different place that i think a lot of those bands whether or not they should do it they they didn't do it and couldn't maybe couldn't do it um and then obviously you know the the personality that comes across on the record is just amazing the the banter the sort of the he does things vocally 
that Eddie Vedder would just never do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uses a falsetto, you know, um, he'll, you know, take a, like a ooh-ah thing and make it a hook, which, you know, Eddie Vedder's never going to do something References like that. his own band name in the, ba- in the songs. <laughs> right. right. Like all of that stuff, which, you know, it just, it, it's, it's, it's all about personality and fun. And he's just having a, the, the dude's having a blast writing these songs and playing them. Yeah, there, there's definitely a darkness and a loneliness and a, you know, anxiety and pathos. But at the same time, there there is definitely that sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You take a song like Holy Roller, which is this big, you know, brash, but there there's a joy to it. You know, there there's there's a um, what what do you want to say? There's a there's there's definitely a knowing energy of, you know, as as much as some of these songs are dark and brooding. That there's also fun and big and you know inclusive and joyful music going on. Yeah, yeah. The spoken part in that song it just kills me every time. <laughs> it is David Lee Roth quality mm-hmm. you know, bridge dialogue. That when he gets to the part about they're like soup, they're like multi meal, they're good for you. <laughs> they're like nothing bad. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> just like every time I hear that, I just. I get a huge smile on my face. Um, and that's something that, like, again, you know, they totally could pull that off and nobody else from that era could could do anything like that. They just, they just you know, just didn't have the personality to do it. So I, I actually know, I'm gonna, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you guys, what do you think the first single off of this record would have been if they had promoted it and sent the band out on tour? Wow. We're talking about two different sides of this band, and it's where do you go? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to think Stardog Champion. Yeah. And that was the single. Yeah. Because they, they, they had a video for it in the can, and once everything started to break with Seattle and they started to launch the, the compilation, they, there was like a big production about it premiering on MTV. I clearly remember that. And, uh, you know, like a afternoon slot. This was before Total Request Live you know, debut and pushing that song. It's a weird song though. Like, I mean, yeah, it is. it's, uh, it's, it doesn't have very many lyrics. I mean, there's only two verses and not much. I mean, there's a chorus, but it's not like, you know, it's short and there's that whole coda at the end. That's, mm-hmm. you know, not exactly, uh, you know, video friendly in terms of it kind of takes on a whole other vibe towards the end of the song. At the same time, it's got an energy and a drive to it, right? That, that's catchy and, and uh, you know that you can you can imagine people picking up on that when they're in their cars driving home or whatever. Right. It's a, it, when you when you hear it, it you know, at a, at a first listen, you're like, oh yeah, this sounds like okay, I can imagine that. But then when you dissect it, you're like, this is a weird song. <laughs> like, yeah, just the structure of it and everything. It's uh, it's not typical of, of 1990. Since we're talking about Stardog Champion and its limited verses, I want to talk about the second verse. It's the lines where he says, uh, West Virginia, that's where, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but where my father's from, he was a wartime hero, the best that money can buy, or the kind that money can buy. Does it, anybody know, is that true? Like, is he speaking of... A little bit. His um, his father was in the Air Force, and... Um... They get they get into the a lot of the family dynamic and, and the issues about where all of this came from in the in the documentary about him, 
because the documentary, as much as it is about his life, they took the opportunity to make it about this is what addiction does and this is where addiction comes from, but it's not preachy. But anyways, his father was uh, in the Air Force and okay. um, just as Jerry Cantrell's father inspired the rooster from Alice in Chains album, you know, obviously the, these guys were were damaged by their experiences in the military during the Vietnam era. And this is their children kind of reflecting that musically. And I think that's where it comes from. And I know that some of it is, you know, him making up things about, about the, the specific facts. But yes, his father was in the military. Uh, I think he was career Air Force. And that led to certain family dynamic issues that definitely played into the creativity of Andrew Wood and, and his brothers for that matter. Well, I just appreciated that he was able to contain complaining about his dad to basically one verse, whereas mm -hmm. Eddie Vedder has done it probably in the beginning. Every other song was in some way about his dad. So I'm glad we were able to get to a little bit more lyrical diversity um, on <laughs> well, this record. We don't know where Andrew Wood would have gone, and that's, that's of course, you know, yeah. the, big, the big question, so... Talk about uh, Stargazer for a second. That's a song that I've always loved. And mm -hmm. when I revisited it, uh, the band that p uh, jumped out to me was actually Pink Floyd. Um, yeah. It's got a very dreamy, well, at least musically. Um, but it, it certainly has it has a bit of that power ball ballad element to it that, again, is, you know, it's effective. Um mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, somewhat familiar. I'm sure that's kind of slightly where they were coming from on it. But uh, did you guys read it that way? Well, Jay, uh, I'll just chime in here. As the author of the definitive guide to Hard Rock's softer <laughs> side, Power Ballad, uh, Mother Love Bone actually did not make the volume one. But there is a good opportunity for them to show up in volume two. That's all I'm going to say. You, is this a Power Ballad? Yeah, and I think Crown of Thorns actually qualifies as a power ballad too. Really? Like they, I think they're both power ballads. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think um, Stargazer reminds me of maybe uh, kind of Enough's Enough or some of that that kind of hair metal era cheap trick in some ways with, with keeping that power pop underpinning but definitely having that, that you know, steel heart power ballad kind of, a, kind of a feel to it. Maybe not as wailing as steel heart, but... You know, that that because that's what kind of what, what was going on at the time. And I can see producers sitting down and going, yeah, we can maybe mold this this way. Or maybe that's how they had it. But the verses are like the way he delivers it is so different. You know, it's almost mm -hmm. spoken mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, he's kind of riffing and vocally. Well, it's the, it's the I love that take on it, though. And yeah, it's yeah. it's, it's uh, taking something that's. um that's not a classic, but maybe sounds like a classic. If that of what the genre was at the time, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. The the line in the I think it's the second verse, um, when he says, uh, "Set me up with a guy." Why? Like it's just such <laughs> a. Uh, you're right. It's like such a riff vocal yeah. as opposed to a like a melodic sort of thing. Um, it's so it just sticks in your head so much more when he does it that way. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing like. Again, no nobody else from that that the preceded them would do that, and uh, it's it's I, I can't even imagine somebody covering that. You know what I mean? It's so him. 
it's all about the delivery that I don't even like I've heard, you know, Pearl Jam cover and Chris Cornell cover some of their songs. They do okay, but a song like that and lines like that, how do you deliver that line if you're not him? You know what I mean? Well, it just that, sounds silly. That one's all about his relationship with his girlfriend though. That's very specific to the reality mm-hmm. of what he was going through. Um, I think she's her name, Zanna, is is referenced in the song. And I believe that she is also referenced in Crown of Thorns. And uh, they had a very kind of a conflicted relationship. And uh, that I guess she did set him up with a guy at one, one point. And that's kind of what he's reacting to. That's crazy. Hmm. I guess I never really realized that in the chorus he's saying, Oh, Zanna, you call the shots. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was more of a generic, like, or I actually thought he was saying, like, Oh, Zanna, like, uh, what's the song? Um, now I'm like blanking. Thinking about but... Stephen Foster, Oh Susanna. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like Oh Susanna. No, no. Uh, no, that's not what he's saying. Okay, but was... the way he, the way he phrases it is is very close to sounding like that. Yeah, and and she's actually in the in the documentary and and talks a little bit, talks pretty openly about what happened, but uh, talks a little bit about some of the stuff that led to the, the music. I'm kind of wanting to do a track by track here, so I'm just going to lead us in that direction. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Heartshine. Again, I started off talking about the drums on this record, which I think are totally unappreciated. You know, a really cool drum groove that kind of set it up. It's got that big kind of slamming 80 sound, but there's a cool shuffle to it. You know, it sets up a a very cool... uh, you know, bed for the rest of the band to come on and come and come and build on. Um, it's got a really good chorus as well. Yeah, it's it's definitely a it's a rocker, but it's it's got a different kind of a mood to it, mm-hmm. kind of a feel. It's got like a, that guitar riff is a very '80s metal kind of feel, but not in the like, like cheesy, you know, poison sort of way. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a I don't know what band Jay, you'd probably be better at pinpointing it. Like in terms of that style of riffing, uh, it could be a, an extreme riff. That's yeah. Okay. That's, that's kind of what was in my brain. Yeah. Kind of a funk oriented, you know, line, but very rocked up. Okay. And then, uh, Captain High Top to, to me, this is the song the the song that Aerosmith wished they were writing in the nineties. Yes. <laughs> can, can I just say that those two opening lines are, are, are the greatest skewering of the whole cock rock? Um, you know, like getting the girl, getting the groupie mentality. I mean the. The, I'm the instigator of the me generation, the official inseminator of a female population. That just <laughs> distilled what Kiss and Aerosmith and yeah. Motley Crue and all the rest of them were wish they could have could have gotten away with. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in reality, that's what they were kind of getting away with. But as far musically, I mean, that just kind of distilled the whole impetus of that we're going to dress like women so we can get the women. Is is their name essentially uh, a yes. sexual? Okay. Yeah, and the other thing that Andrew Wood said in uh, in in a video in the video was 
that his uh, his idea for the name Mother Love Bone is it's three syllables, just like Led Zeppelin. It's four. Okay, four syllables. Thank you. But yeah, he was, <laughs> well, I, was, I, was, I started counting. I was wait, like, wait a minute. You sure you're not confusing that with Def Leppard? Okay, so here's my, my funny little <laughs> Def Leppard aside. A couple of years ago, my buddy and I did a, uh, a little blog thing where we wrote about 90s music, including, you know, Mother Love Bone. Um, we were looking for a name, and my, my friend says to me, well, it has to be something Def Leppard related because he's a fan. I'm not. So I went through all of their, their song titles, and I found one called something like Sparkle Lounge. So our little blog project was the Sparkle Lounge. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, isn't that like a 90s release? I think it is. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, that's when they tried to do like more of a contemporary sound. I don't think that went over well, yeah. if, I, if I remember correctly. But, but their name was an homage to Led Zeppelin. That's why it's yes. Cool. He was trying to get that same vocal rhythm of the name, mm-hmm. you know. Very, like I said, very much classic rock. They they very much wanted to kind of mirror that in some way. So I, I want to jump to uh, the song that still gets me every time I listen to it. Man of Golden Words. I know you guys kind of touched on it briefly yeah. earlier, mm-hmm. but um, you know, this was this song. Yeah, this song inspired me to play piano. I taught myself how to play piano based on this song. It's it's not a hard song to play, but it's so well done. Um, it's a beautiful melody. Obviously, the, the lyric Temple the Dog is in this yeah. song and eventually used for the band name. It's got synth, synth strings in the chorus, which, you know, doesn't don't always work, but I, I think they're, they sound amazing and they really add to the sort of lift of the, that whole part. You know, it's very reflective. It's dark taunting you know but um you know maybe embodies him the best in terms of the 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 line words and music are my only tools communication sort of that chanting of that through the Mm -hmm. through the song um i don't know every time i hear this i just can't help but stop and you know take it in and it's a vulnerable song it's it's vulnerable i mean he's opening himself in a way that others necessarily wouldn't have at this point Mm-hmm. And I think Jay, and you know this from playing the piano, it's really hard to write a rock song on piano that doesn't mm-hmm. sound cheesy. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's why I stopped playing. <laughs> it, it just you get to the point where yeah, you just can't. You can't do it. I don't know. You, you get a couple in you that you can figure out, like some you know, but there's a tendency to want to play over everything, and um, right. They do a really good job of, you know, it's he the the piano sets up the melody, but it also gets out of the way um, during certain parts, and it's what ends up making it that work. Thank you. 
And I think that that's what really informs um, Sean Smith. Like his piano playing is really similar to this in that it, it informs the groove and the melody, but it doesn't ever overpower it. I wonder, I wonder what a cover of this would, would sound like. And uh, I was thinking for a minute, what if a Fiona Apple or a Tori Amos had done that? But oh, yeah. I don't think this song would be right for either of them. Maybe Gentle Groove, but somebody like Sean Smith could probably get away with covering this. Have you guys heard his Crown of Thorns cover? Nope. Oh, it's... I, it's, I think we need to dedicate some time to talking about Crown of Thorns, so... Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Um, Jay, you're, since you're jumping... You're, since you're going in um, chronological or uh, tracklist order, yeah. we should get to uh, Capricorn Sister. I mean, this, this is one where the, the guitar riff... I mean, that that is a Pearl Jam riff. Like, So when I heard this... This record, that these are the types of things that immediately connected with, like, oh, from a guitar standpoint, that totally sounds like what I, what I expected. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I also yeah. get a big cult sound from this because it has those, even though it's a big guitar rock, it has, like, these bluesy licks that, like, Billy Duffy would throw in on a electric album type stuff. It has It has that weird combination of, like, big reverbed sound, but with these, like, bluesy licks thrown in yeah and it's it's got a 70s thing going i don't know maybe slade or somebody like that in there kind mm-hmm. of that, that that kind of glammy blues sound it's because it's got that stomp that yeah. they that they did on a lot of stuff you know and this is also the one where he name checks freddie mercury as well as the band you know mother love bone yeah that's right is this an older song do you know? know no i don't think so um, have any of you guys heard any of the malfunction stuff? Yeah, yeah. Which was m- much more punky and basic. Although mm. there's 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 one exactly one malfunction song. It's called "Until the Ocean." That's it's kind of like a dry run for some of that the more piano ballad based stuff. And I mm. think that's probably the um, of the stuff that's on the "Welcome to Olympus" uh, malfunction CD. That's probably the best song. The mm-hmm. the other the other two really good songs are the the two tracks from the uh, Deep Six compilation, which was the, yep. the first compilation to come out of that area, showcasing this scene, which we covered. Um, gosh, it must have been third season, Jay. I'm guessing third or fourth mm. season when Mark Yarm, author of Everybody Loves Our Town, yeah. came on. We did that compilation. Yeah. We broke. We that was the first time we broke format. To get, cover something that wasn't actually released in the '90s, but it was so relevant to obviously the '90s that uh, we uh, we reviewed that whole record with him. Uh, this song doesn't have much of a chorus. I'm not quite sure what the chorus is. Is it, is it the? It, there's that "Got My Mama in the Kitchen" part yeah. but that kind of yeah. pulls down. Is that the, that's not the chorus though? Not really. And I actually have the the. Um, I guess the liner notes you'd call them from from the CD out. That's got all of the lyrics printed in it, and uh, it does. It's not. It's not set up so that you see the verse, chorus, verse, chorus. But there are certain words or phrases that are highlighted in, in basically in a you know, negative. There's a black background with white letters that um, just kind. It's almost kind of random phrases. But there's nothing to indicate that there's a first course. But I mean, you can tell if you're looking because you see the, you see the lyrics repeated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so no, this one I don't think really does. Random phrases, I think, sums up this this <laughs> this song for me. Like I love it, but yeah, it seems like 
uh, even musically, there's just uh, almost a mishmash of different parts that they had laying around. They kind of put together and random phrases yeah. layered over top. Mm-hmm. It still works pretty damn good, but yeah, it's, it's a good song. <laughs> it, it breaks up the the you know the lower kind of uh, mood between "Man of Golden Words" and "Gentle Groove." Yes. Yeah, and Gentle Groove, that's probably one of my top three songs on the record. Just so different. There's that the guitar riff in that song is so unlike anything you would hear at the time with the, combined with the piano. It's just such an original sound. I you can hear in you could hear the Stone Gossard rhythm playing that he would take into Pearl Jam and he would use and he would also use it in Brad as well. Um that like mildly funky jammy not jammy but um uh, bluesy sort of riffing that he does in this song just absolutely love this track yeah it's 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 great and if i was going to pick one for for one of those those kind of uh piano alternative singers from the the 90s to cover probably this would be near the top of the list you know like i said fiona apple or tori amos i want to hear your take on this song yeah, yeah, they could. Fiona Apple could really deliver the, these verses because that's what, what when this in this song I'm like, uh, who else could do these verses? But she's got the voice to kind of do that. Like, you know, they're rather they're fairly deep, and I think mm-hmm. she could take the spoken parts and or spoken nature of them and make them interesting. I love the arpeggiated sort of intro melody, the do no 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 no, and then when they get to the chorus, they bring that back again and. That to me, that's really the hook, which is I always appreciate that when, um, you know, a song's mm-hmm. got a musical hook to it and not just a vocal hook. So yeah, I'm with you guys. It's a, it's a good one. I think it's also an example of what you find with a lot of these songs is it has an epic feel, almost Def- a, definitely, a, almost a theatrical, uh, operatic, but definitely epic feel. Definitely, and that's something I always. You know, I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, listen to a lot, so much classic rock growing up. I mean, that's what it was all about. You know, uh, 70s was all about basically theater in terms of mm-hmm. rock and roll. So even even to Bruce Springsteen, you know, it's still, oh, yeah. it's blue collar theater, but it's still very theatrical. Um, and painting, you know, creating images um, with lyrics and it's very much in that tradition. It very much makes me think of uh, the Meatloaf, Jim Steinman kind of compositions. Mm. And I'm a total sucker for the Jim Steinman uh, uh, Streets of Fire soundtracks songs. And, uh, I, you know, I think he did some of the work on Floodland from Sisters of Mercy. And you definitely feel that, that epicness of, of the, the, the music. Partially it's that, that – it's the opera really is what I think it comes down to. And I think mm-hmm. that's what this is channeling. You know, and we talk about somebody like Green Day having uh, a Broadway show. Maybe, you know, maybe that's what Andrew Wood would be doing today. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, that would make sense because he has a song called Mr. Danny Boy. And uh, I know there's a, some sort of musical reference in Danny Boy, but I can't remember what it is. So what, I, what, I didn't what's, ask the story, what's the story on this song? Do you guys have the Mr. Danny Boy? Do you have the lyrical uh, reference here? Um, well, there's the Irish ballad, Danny Boy. Mm-hmm. I think that's pro- probably it. Beyond that, that's what I was thinking of. Um, which is, you know, one of the. It's an Irish ballad, but it's become car- part of 
what you would call the Great American Songbook because it's it sounds like it's part of the the landscape of music created throughout American history that that are like signposts for this was this era. This is what was going on in this era. And I, I think that a lot of the songs on this record, as they are the bridge between that kind of poppy hair metal uh, and also other epic things. You know, I, I think I mentioned earlier Belbiv DeVoe, who would definitely had kind of that, that epic soul thing going on. And that, that was huge. I mean, people forget that that was a major record right before all this stuff hit, all the alternative stuff hit. And so I think that there's that element that, that's kind of the, the signpost of, you know, 1990, 1989. You know, uh, Wing, Wings of Change by the Scorpions was a huge hit at this t- around this time as well, which oh, also yeah. has that feel. I assume the song was about a friend. I mean, there's the verse in there of, um, uh, I heard the rumors, Dan- or I guess it's one of the chorus. I heard the rumors, Danny, stop your talking, Danny. I heard the rumors, Danny, lost down in Santa Fe. I had a love with a runaway and I, and to think my daddy thought I was gay. So is he talking about himself? It could be. I, I think I think he did a couple of rehab stints mm-hmm. between the EP and uh, this record. And, you know, that might be something that came out of that. He was in rehab as far back as 1985. And then he went into rehab between the end of recording this record and then when they were supposed to mm-hmm. release it so that he could get cleaned up so they'd yeah. be ready to go. Yeah, he says uh, later on, Bolin was my man. Uh, so I think he's talking. talking well, that's about the T Rex reference right there. Right, yeah. Right. Which I think he's talking about himself. Interesting. I love this tune. I think, uh, like I said, I love the um, that palm muted verse, you know, but then it kind of breaks out into this much brighter, un- almost unexpected chorus. Uh, first time you hear it, it, at least I didn't think that's where they were going to go with the tune. Let's go to uh, the last track. This is the one that has probably uh, the longest uh, not legs, but has been the one that most people know if they know anything mm-hmm. about Mother Love Bone. It's Crown of Thorns. Having been on the single soundtrack, um, I hear it as an influence on like so many artists, not just in the way this song is constructed. And I, I hear it in in the Afghan wigs and, and faded on the last track on um, black love. You hear it in Pearl jams black. I mean, there's so many different variations on this sort of track. And mm-hmm. um, I mentioned Sean Smith does a acoustic guitar version of it. That's really interesting. It's, it's a, uh, uh, I think he does like an open tuning with um, sort of a blues kind of feel to it. Um, and it's kind of up tempo strummed. It's it's a real interesting take on it. It's he's taken sort of like the uh, the Andrew Wood riff approach to the vocal, as opposed to the more power ballad approach of the original version. Um, I think he released it as a live track on one of his like many uh, Bandcamp releases over the years. I saw it. I saw him. What was it? There was some performance he was part of. I want to see some kind of live TV performance or video, like a streaming thing. And this is, that was the song he did, which I thought was really interesting. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. I know that when, in 2010, all of the surviving members got together with him in Seattle and they did a 20th anniversary show. Mm-hmm. 
of Mother Love Bone, and basically Sean Smith played Andrew Wood for the night. Mm, okay. So they did a bunch of the songs. I also think this is one of the songs that Pearl Jam has covered off and on over the years. Yes. Yeah. Which, I don't know, well, how do you guys feel about the, their cover of it? It's fine. I I, I don't, I don't think vocally it has the power of, of, of the original, but, uh, you know, this is, once again, this is the epic. This is the, maybe Andrew Wood's definitive statement about, about everything you know, music and his life and, you know, his experiences and whatnot. And I, I think it's uh, very fortunate that it was on the single soundtrack because, th- first of all, I think it fits. Secondly, I, I think it's the maybe the most accessible song in general, but it's it's also one that, um, that you know, people are going to remember because of that, that, that epic scope and it stands out. And I actually think, a lot of people bought the compilation record based on on that song. It, it, if they weren't buying it because it was from the guys that were going to be in Pearl Jam, they bought it because of that song. And it's cool that it's the Chloe Dancer extended yeah. version too. You get the long intro. And that was originally on the Shine EP, the uh, the extended version. Really? Yep. I didn't know that. Okay. Yep. So did it, they completely re record it for Apple, or is it the same recording? I don't know if it's, I don't know if the same recording or not. And also, I should add that uh, Capricorn's sister was also on the uh, Shine EP. Okay. Yeah, I felt like that song sounded maybe it sounded earlier. It sounded less lesser developed than some of the others. Does anybody know? Um, you know, often when bands come to an abrupt end, there's material that's either like half finished or <laughs> un, just unreleased. In terms of the output of the band is apple and the shiny p is that it for all the material that's been released is there any bootlegs of additional songs or i'm not unfinished? sure about the, yeah i'm not sure about the bootlegs but the the compilation included uh a song called lady lady godiva blues which is kind of a 70s blues rock uh, you know it's, it's a fine song there's nothing wrong with it it, I don't think it would have fit with the other other tracks on on Apple. Mm-hmm. And then I was just seeing that uh, in 2014 there was a vinyl uh, release of uh, uh, I guess a seven inch that had a song called "Hold Up Your Head" or "Hold Your Head Up." Oh yeah, that's a cover of okay. Ardent. Yes, and then the I B-side actually have was, that. Okay, and the B sides, "Holy Roller." So I'm I'm sure that there was probably a couple of b-sides that they recorded for you know they recorded for promos or sound you know you dole out the soundtracks or whatever as time went on but i, yeah, I don't think there was much more i think that that there was a lot of bootlegs that got floated around in the 90s when people were kind of curious but I, I think that this is a case of the you know the, the compilation sold extremely well it sold over a million copies I, I remember seeing a report on mtv where they talked about the members of Pearl Jam at the end of 1992, they had been on four records that sold over a million copies being uh, 10 single soundtrack Temple of the Dog and then the Mother Love Bone compilation. But I, I, I ran into a lot of people in 1993 and 94 that were like, yeah, I bought that and it's crap. I, don't, I didn't get it or it's not Pearl Jam or it's I think it, it sounded a little bit too much like what people were running away from as well. The um the soundtrack to the movie malfunction 
mm-hmm. has a ton of uh, unreleased stuff on it. So my my sense is that they spent two years working on this record. So, and he died before it even came out. So I would doubt that there's anything left that, and if there is anything, it basically would be malfunction or, you know, pre, pre mother load bone stuff. And it probably is on that CD. Yeah. I'm, I'm holding the, the, the set. It's the malfunction, the Andrew Wood story. So there's one, disc one is the DVD with the documentary. Disc two is a reissue of Malfunction Return to Olympus, which, uh, so Stone Gossard started this label called Loose Groove, and they, they're the ones that put out Satchel and Brad and mm-hmm. um, Devil Head and a couple of other other bands. But they also, they issued the, uh, the Malfunction CD. And so on, on the uh, documentary, disc two is that with two bonus tracks, which are the two tracks from the Deep Six compilation. And then disc three is Andrew Wood, Melodies and Dreams, the first ever collection of Andrew's intimate solo recordings from Landrew's Love Nest. So it's a lot of demos and uh, radio station interviews and him talking. And, you know, I've listened to it once or twice and really didn't pick up on anything. It's a lot of fragments, you know, instrumental mm-hmm. versions and messing yep. around the piano, that kind of thing. Just an FYI, the the seven inch that came out it was for Black Store or a Black Friday record store day. Okay. Um, the B side is Holy Roller, but it's listed as an alternative version of it. Ah. So if you're a completist, you're gonna want to pick that up. We should talk about just you know the alternate universe that would exist if uh, Andrew Wood had not passed away. Um, there's no Temple of the Dog. There's no Pearl Jam. Bastard Pussycat doesn't write that song. Yeah. You know, Allison Chains wrote songs. Uh, I believe Wood was uh, in reference to, uh, Lane Staley had said that that was in reference to Andrew Wood. Yeah. Um, although not obviously spelled the same way. There would have been a, a completely, I think, alternate universe in terms of maybe what happened in the 90s. And I wonder if, you know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana were always lumped together. Uh, because of the location, even if they didn't necessarily sound the same, I'm wondering how that would have gone down with Mother Love Bone in Nirvana instead. See, I, I wonder, I think when I look at the, the time period, so this is going to sound kind of crazy, but so if this record had come out in 1990 and the band had been together and touring which Seattle band would have had the big ballad hit? Would it have been Mother Love Bone or Queensryche? It's <laughs> hmm. a good question. Don't get me wrong. I loved Queensryche at that time period. They were a great, a great band, I think. And they were, yeah. they were also one of these bands that was kind of starting to, to bridge the gap, being smarter and a little more operatic yeah. and a little different than the Poisons and Molly Cruz and you know, Guns N' Roses. But... You know, if you think about Silent Lucidity hitting huge in 91, I mean, mm-hmm. how close you could almost hear Andrew Wood singing that potentially. Or you could hear potentially some record exec going, hey, we got a song that we can piggyback right on that that's similar enough to hit the same, uh, the same core audience, but not, it's not a direct copy. We can tie them together. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. It- I think you said it earlier, like they, they just had enough about what people eventually ran away from that. I wonder if that would always 
hold them back. Like it is so unusual what happened in, yeah. in that in the early nineties. I don't none of us could have predicted it that it would be as extreme as it as it was. No, as, as I said earlier, it went literally from blasting warrant right. in July to all Nirvana in December. Right. So I almost, you know, wonder if it would have been impossible. I think when the, when I originally heard about this band, that that was one of the conversations, you know, that would immediately happen. Like, wow, what would happen if they would have stayed together? They'd be big like Pearl Jam, and that was always the theory. But now in hindsight, I wonder if if that would have been the case. I wonder if they would have just have fallen by the wayside like some other i mean there were other bands that were like saigon kick for example Mm -hmm. was another band that was you know in theory bridging the gap right i mean they ended up to your point hitting with a power ballad very much in the very very much in the vein of silent lucidity right like got ponytails and you know like the the pattern button-down shirts you know dark dark scenery well, let me throw uh, another b- band at you that that fell on the the wrong side of the fence when they really shouldn't have. That was hitting it big at the exact same moment. And it's one of my favorite bands, Driving and Crying. Mm. Oh yeah, there you go. Total Southern rock, alternative folk, punk. You know, me- not quite metal band, and they hit with two big singles in uh, 1989, 1990 mm-hmm. that that take them from the underground to the mainstream. And when Nirvana hits, they kind of get left behind, even though they would have fit in so much better on the alternative side of the fence than on the the metal side of the fence. Yeah. So who knows? And there's another player in this that that we haven't talked about at all, and that's – do you guys remember Rip Magazine? Yep. Yep. The the Larry Flint published um, basically heavy metal magazine, but they were odd in that when they started out, they would have cover stories that were like Poison and the Dead Kennedys. The mm-hmm. Ramones and Motorhead, which isn't such a big stretch. Motley didn't, Crue and Black Flag. Didn't Lon and, Friend work there? Yeah, Lon Friend which, was the editor. And he championed yeah. Mother Love Bone. He he was on the Headbangers Ball talking about Andrew Wood would have been a star. They had special issues dedicated to the, wow. the grunching because they were covering it even before it exploded. Yeah. Well, I just wonder if it would have changed, for example, the trajectory of Alice in Chains. Yeah. You know, I wonder if Candlebox would have had, you know, a different sound, a slightly pop metal sound as opposed to what the way that they sounded um, if, for if Mother Love Bone had been around. And if it just would have maybe it would have extended it for a couple of years, maybe not wouldn't necessarily have saved that sound. I think that was, you know, you weren't going to stop Nirvana, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Soundgarden was still going to be Soundgarden. And those things were going to happen. But, but wait a minute. Wait, 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 hold on, though. So let's say Pearl Jam never happens. Let's say Mother Love Bone doesn't go anywhere. Pearl Jam doesn't happen. Sure. Maybe say, say Mother Love Bone makes another record, right, which put, puts mm-hmm. the possibility of Pearl Jam happening out. And, and let's say that just never occurs. So you're left with you know, the big band to break was Nirvana. I think that one of the things that made it take off and really put gasoline on the fire was Pearl Jam. I think they they were very different, but they weren't as polarizing as Nirvana was. So you kind of had this like injection of like, 
this sense of there's this whole new world of bands out there that had a wide spectrum from, you know, sort of a punk influence to slightly ca- classic rock feel, but with a whole new spin, you know, in terms of Pearl Jam. And then the, all of these other bands, including Soundgarden, sort of filled it out. I wonder if you didn't have that end of the spectrum, if, if, if it would have been as commercially impactful or if you just basically had Nirvana as their own thing and a bunch of bands following that without the other side of it. I think that, um, so to me, what, what made the scene really explode and it was, okay, so Nirvana kicks open the door with this amazing single, which, you know, changes everything, but it's still a little too inaccessible for, you know, a lot of people in middle America. But Mm -hmm. then what happens is Pearl Jam comes up behind them with an accessible sound, but talking about the same issues. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, to me, I, I'll, you know, I'll be upfront. Ten's the only Pearl Jam record I actually enjoy. Me and too. <laughs> it's. I think that Black is the greatest song that they ever wrote, and I think somebody they refused to release it as a single. And I remember commentators at commentators at the time saying they would have outsold Nirvana if they had released that as a single mm-hmm. because it's accessible sounding. But they're talking about all of those issues of teen alienation and suicide and anger. And with black especially, it's about the overuse of institutions to deal with uh, you know, children's emotional issues rather than dealing with the underlying family issues that are, go- that are obviously going on. And that's what Alive is about. That's what... Um, you know, even flows about homelessness, which is, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important, but it, it wasn't something that Poison was singing about. Phil Collins, maybe, <laughs> but not Poison. And I don't want to sound like I'm picking on Poison. Poison were fine for what they were. But, Come on, Fallen Angel's kind of about being. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really great song, and I would love somebody to do a, uh, a better version of it with, uh, with a little more grit. But you're, you're right. I mean, just off the bus, out in the yeah. city streets. That just a small time girl. Hey, you know, there's there's a whole living in a lonely world. We could do oh, wait, a whole journey. 80s show talking about how Poison was on the same record label as the Cramps, you know, in 1984. So one of our. Uh, but in any way, that's <laughs> one of our roundtable <laughs> concepts is to at least once a year. I'd like to make it more, but I don't think Tim can do handle more is to pick <laughs> one of those bands. Mm hmm from the 80s and just focus on their career in the 90s. Okay. That, that's actually <laughs> kind of interesting. Cuz once again, I think I think um I think I mentioned enough's enough earlier and to me they were a power poppy like glammy band in some ways like Mother Love Bone that were pushed into that hair metal mm-hmm. that hair metal thing. And Cheap Trick I think is is a one that was, you know, obviously the one of the power pop bands of the 70s that gets pushed over in to that hair metal era in the in the late eighties. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna be doing that coming up in the in probably November, I think is the plan is to revisit and we want to go with big bands, bands that sold tens of millions of records and then how like, do they react like to Trickster? the shifting landscape. Yeah, <laughs> Trickster the shifting landscape of the nineties. I don't think Trickster qualifies. No. We're gonna it, go we're gonna go hey, like I can make the argument that, that Trickster was a bridge band too. They wore flannel. They wore flannel. Yeah. Well, to be fair, a lot of hair metal bands from the '80s, when they saw the the posters change at the record labels from 
warrant Alice in Chains. They said, well, we better throw on flannel and cut our no, hair. No, no, This yeah. was oh, before. This was before no, that. There was a lot, lot of those hair bands from middle America that were wearing flannel. Yeah. Because that, that kind of like dress up in, you know, the new wave hooker lingerie. That was mainly, a, you know, a, a Hollywood West Coast thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, you get out to the Midwest and it's all either flannel or leather. Yeah, the the aesthetic of the flannel and the like, you know, combat boots, that kind of thing wasn't exclusive to Seattle. But and, and to you know, kind of also to bring this back to Mother Love Bone, if you look at the way they were dressed, it was a lot of scarves and a lot of uh, kind of glammy clothes. Not, I mean, uh, Mother Love Bone wasn't necessarily wearing like jeans and a t-shirt or oh, no. a flannel or the the you know the hand-me-down army clothes. And especially Andrew Wood. I mean, he was putting on performance. He wore makeup. He wore, you know, hats that were stolen. You know, that that remind me of uh, what's her name from Four Non Blondes. From Four Linda Perry. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, there was that kind of that style going on with with Andrew Wood as well. Yeah. Well, Stone Gosh liked his hats too, according to the mother. The hold your head up, uh, seven inch. He had a he had a pretty badass hat on. <laughs> they all did. Look at if you look at the photos from that era. You know, yeah, they they were kind of dolling themselves up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it was, more more New York dolls than. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say it, it was like it's all like thrift store crap. Yep. <laughs> you know, they would go in and buy like strange torn up clothes or women's clothes from a thrift store and like put it together into some amalgamation. Right. Well, Andrew Wood's girlfriend Zana actually worked in a clothing store, and I think that's where they got a lot of that. There and there's that line uh, I forget which song where he says talks about dressing him up like a girl and that was something that she had done well on that note (laughs) no we actually should start wrapping up because we're well past an hour and 15 minutes on this uh, well if any record from this era deserves an extra 20 minutes i think it's this one i I agree Um, so i brought up the the point before we leave here is this if we had tim if we had to pick one record to say this is what the show is about I want. I threw out the th- the theory that maybe this is the record that we would point to and say, "Okay, this is what we're talking about when we talk about what we're trying to do with this show." Uh, was it you, Eric, or was it Joe? Somebody pointed out that maybe it's failure. Maybe that's that's the record we point to. But you got? Any, do you have any thoughts on that? I think no. that there's. You could probably pick a, a one album for each year that represents. But you can yeah. only pick one for the whole decade. You can for the whole pick, decade? You got two seconds with somebody. They said you have a po- podcast. What do you do? And you say you review, review music. And they say, well, what do you mean? What kind of music? And you can only point to one record. What do you point to? Well, then they're not going to know it if it's, if we're going <laughs> we... <laughs> to. That's the whole point. Right. So, Can I just say as a listener that if I was going to my friends and saying, yeah, I'm listening to this podcast. We talk about or they talk about 90s music. I've been on a couple of times. And they say, well, what kind of 90s music? I would just look at them and say, all the stuff on the single soundtrack, especially the stuff that are by bands you don't know. Right. There you go. No, I agree. I think that Mother Love Bone is like sort of the the poster child. They happen to have such a, a rich, interesting story and such an important connection to the yeah. launch of the whole decade that it makes them far more interesting and far more relevant than say, you know, failure while being an underappreciated band that happened to make a, what we consider like a classic and very influential album. Um, they, they don't have that sort of lineage 
that connects them well, to he, so much of the bulk of the of the decade. Even the legacy is different, right? I would argue that Mother Lovebone's legacy was was really impactful to the ni- the mid nineties and the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Failure's legacy wasn't. I don't think they really people. That took a long time for that record to kind of be out there, and people. Right. I, I think the impact of that was actually in the two thousands. Right, you're um, right. A lot of bands formed around that record, and you know, de- almost a decade later. Um, can, can I also say about Mother Love Bone that their influence was not just on the music and the people that they knew, but on the business because you have a a hot band with a bidding war that basically you know looks like they're going to stiff at the. Uh, you know, at the sales counter because the band is done when the record comes out. Who, because the singer died of an OD, and then miraculously, you know, basically they rise from the ashes to sell over a million copies of this compilation, plus another record that's a tribute to the lead singer that nobody hears at first, but once the other bands involved start to break, you know, Temple of the Dog gets rolled out when it was originally, you know, kind of a throwaway. The other thing is this: they were a band that was the bidding war allowed them to have their own record label and their own vanity label that we saw several of those during the 90s. And then by 96, 97, that telecom act and the record labels start saying we don't, you know, we've been burned too many times by these weirdo bands that we can't control. So I think that from that, that aspect that they are highly influential of what happens throughout the rest of the decade. And that's a huge theme of, of this podcast is that whole business end of it. That, that's the reason why we can do this show in, into it, uh, into eternity is that there was so much money in a, such a short amount of time thrown at so many bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you maybe have to go back to, I don't know, the sixties to find another decade that, that was like that. So it's just, a wash and in bands that nobody knew knew existed in terms of that question that you posed it was joy joe Royland who answered okay. uh failures fantastic planet i also want to we need to thank other people we didn't mention the comments um specifically but we need to thank uh, a couple people who did make comments um push on uh i'm probably gonna slaughter the last name here but Badachara, i think is how i say it and then over on uh, Twitter, Cian Llewellyn and Scott Halgram both chimed in with comments. And then, of course, Eric chimed in with his um, his uh, collection of uh, goods and, and his comments. So we didn't get to him specifically, but I want to thank everybody for, for mentioning stuff. Any last words? We ready to wrap this up? I think so. Rip yes. Andrew Wood, rest in peace. Yes. You know, if, um, if people want more, they should definitely check out the uh, the, the documentary, the Andrew Wood story. It's well worth your time to sit down and watch it. Is that on any streaming services? Like, is, does Netflix yes. have that or anything? It's, or? it's on Quello, which okay. is a Q E L L O, and you can get a free seven day trial. So you can sign up for a free trial, watch the movie, and then you're done. Watch a couple, watch a couple Queen concerts, and cancel is that the service that's like primarily music based yeah it's all uh concerts and documentaries okay it, cool it works on your computer no and apple tv if I, whatnot if i can just jump in real quick i actually watched a documentary today on youtube 
about Jeffrey Lear Pierce from the Gun Club. You familiar with with him and their work? No, you know the name. Right. So very briefly, the Gun Club were started in the early '80s. They were the punk blues band. They were the the really the first ones to take the punk energy and apply it to blues back in, in the day. And he had a very uh, egotistical. I, I mean, it's it's a fascinating documentary mainly because it seems like he shot himself in the foot at every every step. And there's some great stuff in there about the music business from Rollins and Lemmy talking about what happened, along with John Doe from the band X. At any rate, there's something about Jeffrey Lee Pierce that reminds me of Andrew Wood because he died young, he had drug problems, but he had the same kind of need to express from his soul this pain and this you know, feeling, and you know, sometimes joy. I mean, the music was definitely different but it had that same kind of epic energy to it mm. so it's i think it's just called a, a a portrait of jeffrey lee pierce and it's on youtube so you can go check it out there if you're at all interested cool, cool. i think that's a good spot for us to wrap up um need to thank our returning guest eric peterson eric where can we find you what's the name of the podcast that you would chime in on it is. I uh, love that album, and uh, each episode, each regular episode, I do a segment, and I actually covered this this particular record, uh, Mother Love Bones Apple, a couple of years ago in one of my segments. And then uh, on the other part of the month, I do a twenty or thirty minute seg or episode. All it's all me talking about compilation records, and I have covered the Deep Six compilation and the hype soundtrack and stuff like that. So cool. Want to remind everybody. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And of course, if you have an album you'd like to suggest for us to review, head on over to our request review page and um, request it. We're going to be back. I got to check the schedule. I think we're doing a review next week. And then we've got a roundtable discussion coming up on punk rock in the 90s. We're going to... um, talk about the enshrinement of Green Day in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all the other stuff that went on involving punk rock. I can't remember any other bands that are punk rock right now. but <laughs> Rancid. Rancid! You really um, saw it. Like the off- Green- Is the Offspring punk or are they a rock band? I don't even remember. They're ripping off the Vandals and TSOL. I don't okay. know. Uh, there you, were some other were, ones. Oh, uh, You know, Bad Religion had a huge resurgence. Pennywise. Yes. Um, you know, Epitaph Records took off. Lookout Records took off. You get uh, the Burning Heart Records scene in Sweden with Melanie Collin and Refused and, uh, you know, a whole load of bands that people, you know, the, the, some people could lump the hives in there. And uh, the Ramones had their last, like, gasp with a single in the 90s before they ended. I think they actually had, like, a pretty high-charting single. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be coming up soon and, uh, that's it for Eric and Jay. I'm Tim. We're out back next week with another episode of dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. It's the kind of-